It's interesting, on the lectern we have a Holy Bible in large print, maybe. It's indicative of the age of some people. Not talking about myself, of course. I'd like you to turn, open your Bibles, whether they be large print or small, uh, to uh, Exodus chapter 17. And uh, while you do that, let's just... uh, in our hearts, ask God to speak to us through his word. Yeah, Lord, just be with us as we read your word. Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 to the end of the chapter 16. Okay. Right. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rapidium. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, for hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The the Lord... The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. We thank God for his word. Did you want to come this side so I could help you down? (laughs) I don't mind, I'll help you up. (laughs) (laughs) Don't clap that. And some people print the Bible on even bigger print so they can have it in the pulpit with them. (laughs) Good morning, everyone. Our pastors are away today. Pastor Charlie is riding a bike with a group of people on a fundraising thing for raising funds to fight MS. And some of you may have contributed to that. There's a group of other guys going from the church as well, people. Pastor David's down at Regal Waters, taking the service down there, and Pastor Brendan's at Hertford Street, and I think Pastor Alvin is down in the, uh, with the Mandarin service, overseeing that. And I'm here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is an awesome and an amazing privilege, blessing, that you've given us by giving us your word that in this book we have truth 
spiritual truth, lessons that you have inspired, recorded for us to read and to learn from, to guide us through our life's journey. We thank you likewise for the ministry of your Holy Spirit, who prompts us, speaks into our consciences and deep into our spirits. And I ask, Heavenly Father, that you would be pleased this morning to again cleanse us from all sin, that there would be no hindrance, no obstruction to us hearing your voice, your truth, and that we would be clay in your hands, that you might shape us and then fill us with the purpose, Lord, of not only growing us, but of using us for the extension of your kingdom and for the glory of Jesus. We pray in his name. And everybody said, Amen. We've been travelling with the children of Israel through the book of Exodus, and last week we emphasised the very common truth uh, that God is at work in our world, obviously, but as God was working with the people of Israel through the wilderness, so now God is at work in our lives as we travel through our wilderness, so to speak, as we journey from conversion to the promised land, heaven. God has been teaching his people the basics and through them us. He's been reminding them that he is the God who delivers, he saves, he rescues, he gets us out of situations, ultimately out of sin and then out of sin's control by heaven. But even in this life, he continues to save and to deliver. He teaches us through Exodus that we are to trust his appointed leaders. Sometimes that can be difficult, can't it? But nonetheless, that's what he requires. God guides us, sometimes very clearly, sometimes subtly. He provides for us and he reminds us that he is with us. Well, in chapter 17, in the passage that Graham read to us, and in chapter 18, which we're looking at this morning, there are more lessons, three lessons, in fact, which I'll summarise in three words in just a moment. <clears throat> Some of the battles the children of Israel had and that we have are from within, either from within ourselves where we wrestle with our own discontent, with our own doubts or discouragements or our own inner wrestles, our sinful nature. And sometimes it's from within, but it's not just within us, it's within our church body, our group of friends or colleagues or whatever. That's, there's division and there's hurt and there's offence and, and we have to do what God tells us to do, that we are to explore that, we're to speak honestly with one another, hold each other to account and we're to forgive, we're to seek to reconcile and to help each other to maintain the path of following him. Sometimes, like in this passage, the battle is not from within, it's from without. In this case, it's the Amalekites who attack Israel. It's a bit of a cowardly act because they come from behind, they pick on their the stragglers, those who are weary, the women and the kids. They sneak up behind them, this defenceless people, and they attack them. The book of Deuteronomy 25 tells us the Amalekites have no fear of God. So this is an unprovoked attack. These descendants of Esau, wandering nomads, we don't know why, but probably it's associated with the fact of where they are. They're at Rephidim, which is where that abundant supply of water has been given. Water is always an issue in the wilderness, in the desert, and perhaps they, uh, two million people are going to draw, use up their resources and perhaps they're coming to defend it. Don't know, we're not told, it's not important. 
And sometimes the Lord will say to us when we have an outward attack or something, sometimes God will say, stand still. Watch me deal with this. That's what he did at the Red Sea. But usually God doesn't say, stand still and do nothing. Usually God says, I want you to do this. I'll do that, but I want you to do this. He calls us to cooperate with him. Cooperate with him in resisting temptation. To cooperate with him in in terms of provision, to get a job. To cooperate with him in terms of looking after our health, go to a doctor. To cooperate with him ultimately, though, is to work with him in prayer. To conduct this spiritual campaign that's going on. And so in these, two, in these chapter and a half, God gives us three lessons and three words. And around those three stories, I want you to get these three truths. The three lessons, the three stories are the Amalekites attacking the Israel, where it's all about praying. God wants us to learn a lesson about praying. And we'll spend most of our time this morning on that one. The second one is in chapter 18, verses 1 to 12, which is about Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, and his wife and two sons coming back, family reunion and a sharing time. Sharing. Sharing God's stories together. What's God been doing in your life? Sharing with those closest to us. Praying. Sharing. The third story is in the last half of chapter 18, verses 13 to the end where Jethro observes what Moses is doing on a daily basis and is very concerned for him and he gives him some very practical, turns out being God-directed advice. It's about restructuring the way he's doing things to delegate stuff. And so that word is about, that story is about serving. Praying, sharing, serving. It's something we do with our hands. Raise your hands in prayer, which is what Moses does very common in the scriptures for the men to raise their hands in prayer and the sharing to open your hands share the stories of what God has been doing in your life with loved ones and those closest to you and use your hands in serving praying sharing serving check each other if you go and have coffee afterwards <coughs> check each other what was the sermon about this morning and then which one of those is the one that you need to work on the most. All of us need to work on all of them. But maybe one of those is ahead of the list for you. Let me just digress a little bit before we talk about the story, talk about prayer, to remind you more than anything else rather than teach you new things, though for some of you it may be new. <clears throat> when we pray, we, when we pray sincerely, not when we go through the religious motion of saying words, when we pray and connect with God sincerely, then we are in fact humbling ourselves. We are admitting if not actually consciously, at least we are demonstrating that we are not independent people, that we can't do this on our own, that something is beyond us. We need help. That's why we pray. We give up the idea of our own autonomy, our own self-sufficiency, our own independence. <clears throat> That's why prayer can be embarrassing. Particularly if other people are watching us or we're aware that other people are watching us because it hits at our ego, our pride. It's, we are subtly communicating, we're admitting that we are not competent and that we are not capable of doing life on our own. We need God's help. 
And God's help is not just for the weak and the weary. God's help is for everybody. It's just some are prepared to admit it. Many aren't. And the reality is for most of us, for most people, even throughout Australia, somewhere, sometime, they've bowed their heads, they've cried out to God. Perhaps not everybody, but gee, a lot of people. Even folks who don't know the Lord Jesus and follow him, they cry out to God for help. That's why we were made. God made us to be that dependent, to rely on him, to talk with him, to get help from him. And before sin entered the world, it was also to thank him, to enjoy him and to honour him in this conversation with God, heartfelt. And for many of you who are praying people, and I don't know many of us who can't and don't want to do it better, want to do it more, want to improve in it, I certainly do. We know, most of us know far more about prayer than what we actually practice. What we need to do is actually do it. It's true, isn't it? But the scripture teaches us and our own personal experience teaches us when we do pray, when we do humble ourselves, when we do pour out our hearts to God, when we connect with him, then we experience this peace which is beyond understanding. People testify to that sort of thing all the time. Seems very unreal, but it is unmistakable. Secondly, when we pray, really connect with God, then we'll experience a sense of his closeness, presence beyond our imagination. And thirdly, when we pray, sincerely connect with God, not only get peace, not only get a sense of his with you, his presence, but you'll also experience his intervention, his power beyond your experience. Not infallibly, not automatically. If I pray, God will do that. God is not our servant. But when we sincerely pray, it often happens that there is this link, and that's the point of this story. There is a link between what was happening in the valley down below and what was going on on the mountain. There is this connection between praying and succeeding, prevailing. That's the truth of this story. But like I said, it's not automatic because there's a mystery to it. God's sovereign will, sometimes God says no to what we're requiring because he's got something better in plan or... He's doing something else and he just needs us to hang on or, or whatever the purpose or reasons are. But when we do pray, it often happens that God delivers, God provides, God heals, God transforms. God's power flows into our situation in some way. The circumstances change, the relationship gets fixed, the struggle we have is becoming a lot easier to cope with. There could be psychological problems or relational problems. There's some difficulty, some dilemma, some discouragement. Prayer makes a difference. Somebody will object and say, ah, it's just all coincidence. Archbishop William Temple gave a brilliant answer to that. He said, that may be so. But when I stop praying, coincidences stop happening. Prayer has significant results, which is why it's part of our vision over the next five years, which you are still to receive. Moses faced a crisis in this story. The Amalekites, this external force, are coming. There is no mention in the text of the passage that God actually told him to do this, though at the end of the passage, God does say, give his sort of blessing upon it, of record this, and there's an altar built. Moses meets with Joshua. They've got a problem. The Amalekites are coming. They discuss it, they strategize, they plan. 
Moses says, you pick some of the best men and tomorrow go down there and you fight them. I'll take Aaron, my brother, and her. And we don't know a lot about. The Jewish tradition is that it's his brother-in-law. Um, but we don't know that. We know he was a judge and a significant spiritual other, excuse me, in Israel. Aaron and her, and I'm going to take the rod of God and I'm going up on top of the hill. I'm going to pray. Joshua agrees because he believes in the power of prayer, I would assume. And he certainly would rather have Moses, who is how old? 80. Moses is 80. That's old, isn't it? Graham. I said, young fellow, that's old. It's not really, is it? The closer I get to it, the younger it seems. Joshua would much rather have Moses praying than Moses fighting. I guess they slept well, had a good breakfast, manna. Joshua goes down the next morning, takes his troops... This is the very first battle Israel has been involved in. There's no other battle before this one ever mentioned. Before this, God did all the fighting. Now they are going to cooperate with God. And down they go. Moses climbs the hill, raises the staff of God in his hand. They attack each other. And as long as Moses is holding up his hands, whether it's one arm holding up the staff or whether it's two or whatever it is, Israel is prevailing. Israel's winning. And he holds it up for a long time. And Israel is pushing the Amalekites back. And Moses' arms are getting weary, tired. And Israel's winning anyway. So he lowers his hands. And then he observes something. Now the Amalekites are refreshed or regenerated and they're now pushing Israel back. And so Moses does it again. He raises his hands again. And he gets tired. And the same thing happens. And he makes the observation. So they go and get a rock for him to sit on. How big was the rock? It's got to be sizable, doesn't it? So these two guys go and get a rock, and it's not like, mm, yeah, sit on that. It's strain, struggle, push, get it over there. Because Moses probably has to be visible to the troops below. Because God's not just teaching Moses, God is teaching Joshua, and God is also teaching the Israelites. There is a connection between hands raised in prayer and success on the battlefield. And Moses puts it together and so does Aaron and her. And Aaron and her stand on one side or the other of Moses and hold his arms up until the end of the day. And Israel is victorious and the Amalekites are defeated, not completely destroyed, but defeated enough to push them away and for Israel to take a breather. Moses makes this amazing connection. Hands raised, heaven's door is open and power is released. It's still the way it operates in our world. In fact, John Wesley said, think about this, see if you agree or not. John Wesley said, taught, God does nothing in the world except in answer to prayer. Interesting, isn't it? God does nothing in the world except in answer to prayer. Somebody somewhere is praying. James says, you have not because... There's a link between prevailing and getting things done and fixed up and praying. Not infallibly, because God is sovereign. Excuse me. If you're willing to involve yourself, to involve the Lord, 
in your daily challenges, then you'll experience his help as well at home, at work, in your relationships, at school, in the church, wherever. If you'll humble yourself, sincerely connect with him and have a chat with him about, God, I need your help. And God's help comes in all sorts of ways. It's not always the strong miracle. It's not always the victory in battle like we read in this story. It can be. But sometimes God answers you by giving you wisdom, giving you an idea, giving you an insight. Sometimes he'll just simply give you courage or resolve or confidence or perseverance so that you can continue. Sometimes he'll change circumstances. However and whatever God's power is released through prayer when we humble ourselves. One author has written, I don't like the way he said it, he said, it's hard for God to, re to release his power in your life when you drop your hands by your sides or put them in your pocket. I can handle this. It's hard for God to release his power. I think it's hard for God to do anything. So if you say the sentence around the other way, when we drop our hands, when we stop praying, when we are prayerless, then it makes it difficult for the Lord to be able to release his power in your life to bless you. Because of our sinful nature, we have this amazing propensity to think we did it. Imagine if Moses didn't go up on the mountain and pray. Imagine that Joshua did win the battle. What would Joshua be thinking? I did that. Me, by my might and by my military genius, I got the victory. And uh, as good as Joshua was in the battle, and as strong as Moses was in prayer, it's not because Moses is mighty in prayer or Joshua is brilliant in battle. It's because God worked. So he gets the honour, he gets the glory. That's why he's made us to be a people who pray. Prayerlessness disconnects us from God's prevailing power. Like the Israelites, you'll begin to feel overwhelmed, you'll feel beaten, you'll feel pushed back, you'll feel defeated. Prayerlessness. <clears throat> Whereas prayerfulness plugs us in, connects us with a God who is almighty, who can do anything. Heads up, the Lord is listening. And he wants to hear from you every day. Question before we move on. Do you have an Aaron or a Ben-Hur her, to help hold up your hands? Do you have somebody who encourages you, supports you, motivates you, helps you in prayer? Remember those things called uh, prayer triplets? Three people getting together. Well, here's the first prayer triplet. Moses, Aaron and her. Or an accountability group or a life group. Even a good book on prayer or a journal on prayer, recording things down. And this story ends by God saying to Moses, write it down. Write what happened down. Write it on a scroll. And make sure Joshua hears it. Why? So that Joshua doesn't think he did it. So that he makes the connection between I win because prayer was offered. Then they build an altar as a memorial. Pass it on to the next generation, God is saying. Write it down, make sure others hear it and pass it on to the next generation. Second story. That was praying. What's the second word? Sharing. 
It's a wonderful story of a family reunion. We don't know some of the details of this. Moses had married Zipporah, uh, the daughter of Jethro, or whatever his name is. That could be his title, Riguel, whatever. Married her and had two sons via her. First son was called Gershom, which stands for foreigner, because he, was a, he felt he was a foreigner in a strange land because he's in the land of Midian, an Egyptian, Hebrew, Egyptian, now in the land of Midian. Has a second son whose name is, I forget, uh, Eliezer, which means God is my helper, because God delivered me from Pharaoh's sword. Names his sons, it's like a spiritual journey in the names of his sons. Now, my imagination it is, Moses has moved the children of Israel. They're about to head to approach, chapter 19, the, the mountain Sinai. And in the process, because he's near, not far from Midian, I think he sends wife, Zipporah, and two kids to see grandparents. Not, not a long trip. And so off they go. After a period of time of visiting grandpa and grandma, I guess, in chapter 18, we are told that Jethro, the priest of Midian, father-in-law of Moses, he heard everything that God had done for Moses. How did he hear? Well, there's travellers and people, whatever, walking through the area, travelling through the area, and stories are told, just like Rahab in Jericho. And then in verses 2 to 5 and following, we have uh, Zipporah having visited with the two kids at Jethro's place. Now in verse 5, Jethro's most father-in-law, together with the wife and kids, is now coming to Moses, who is near the mountain of God. Joshua sent him word. Uh, Moses, Jethro sent him word. Let's read if uh, Gary can put these verses up for you. Verse 7. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. It's respectful. They greeted each other, and then they went into the tent. Greetings in the ancient Near East can take quite a bit of time, and going into the tent would have been to have a meal and so on to share things. Listen to this, verse 8, sharing. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and about all of the hardships that they'd also met along the way, and how the Lord had saved them. Moses is sharing with his father-in-law some of the things, the things that God had been doing, sharing God's stories. That's what I want to encourage you to do this morning. Share with your family, share with your friends, your loved ones, God's stories. What's God been doing? How have you seen him at work? How have you observed it? So here is this guy, Jethro. We don't know a lot about. Commentators argue whether he was a believer at this stage or not. I don't know, but I err on the side of saying I think he was. He was a bit like Melchizedek, the priest. This is before the priesthood is set up with Aaron. This is before the law is given to Israel. But he's a bit like Melchizedek, a Gentile priest. He either knew Yahweh, the true and living God, or in this experience, he is converted and he comes to know him. He knew something certainly of God's plan for Israel and he appears to be certainly a God-fearer. His response to this story, this sharing of Moses, is he was delighted to hear, verse 9, verse 10, he blesses and praises the Lord, so he seems to know the Lord. Verse 11, he says, now I know the Lord is greater than all the other gods. Personal experience. Verse 12, he gives a burnt offering, which is a symbol of personal, full-on commitment, total sacrifice. Romans 12, 1. 
In view of God's mercies and God acts, present ourselves as a living sacrifice. He appears to be doing that. And he also eats a meal with Moses, with Aaron, with some of the elders in the presence of God. This is a rich fellowship time. Sharing. God would like us to be sharing truths with our families as well. Praying, sharing. Third word, serving. Time is going. Turn your eyes to the screen. The very next day, Grandpa's visiting, but Moses is still back at work. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as a judge or a magistrate for the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, two questions, what is this you are doing for the people? And secondly, why do you alone sit as judge? While all of these people stand around from morning until evening. Moses says, well, they come to ask me questions about what we should be doing and how they should live and... They want to know what God's will is, and I'm the judge, and Moses is busy. He appears to be the police, the law, the counselor, the judge, the theologian, the pastor, and the city mayor. Everything is on him. People are coming, and they're queued up all day. You get to the end of the day, and if you don't get to see Moses, will you come back the next day? He's flat out. Jethro asks him these two questions. What are you doing, and why are you doing it alone? And he says in verse 18, it's not good. What you're doing is not good. You're going to wear yourself out. Take note of that. And you're going to wear the people out. It's ineffective, it's time-consuming, and it's not sustainable. Then Jethro gives him some advice. Here is his advice, verses 19 to 23. Listen to me and I'll give you some advice, he says, and may God be with you. In other words, here's my opinion, but you check with God. See if that's what he wants you to do. Firstly, Moses, here's your new position description. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Prayer. Verse 20. Teach them his decrees and instructions. Teaching. And number three, and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. An example or modelling. That's what you're to do, Moses. Then, verse 21. Select capable men, capable, competent, from all of the people, every tribe, representatives. Men who fear God, don't fear people, but they fear and will do what God wants them to do. They are trustworthy or they're honest. They're people with integrity. They won't be bribed or tricked or conned by peer pressure or anything else. And appoint them, he says, as officials over thousands, over hundreds, over fifties and over tens. Interesting breakdown. Let them serve as judges for the people at all times. And then let them bring every difficult case to you. You can be their backup support. You have to equip them, teach them, but delegate it to them, give it to them. They will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, this is what God wants, you'll be able to stand the strain and all the people will go home satisfied. Win-win. Moses listened. Interesting. Teachable. Open to instruction. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said chose capable people, gave it to them, delegated it to them. What does all of that mean for us? This, there is a role for everyone in God's family, in God's place. And we know that, we all have spiritual gifts. Some lead, but some lead over a thousand, some lead over a hundred, some lead over 50 and some lead over 10. We have different abilities, different strengths and different capabilities. But nonetheless, we have a role and a place to serve. Some lead, we all serve and we all learn. And the last thing 
before I give the summary, is this. Verse 18 is Jethro saying to Moses, you're going to wear yourself out. That grabbed me as I was preparing this this week. It reminded me that God's servants are not exempt from natural laws. We are not superhumans when we follow Jesus. We are not exempt from human natural laws. If we cut corners on health, on our good health, then we will certainly pay the penalties for it, be it mentally, emotionally, physically or relationally. We are not immune. Therefore, our bodies need to be looked after. What's the Mars bar motto? Work, rest and play. Got to work. You have to rest. But you must also play. Work, rest and play. Look after yourself. If the Greeks used to say, if the bow is always bent, what happens? The bow will break. That's what the Greeks used to say. It'll also decrease its effectiveness. Three stories. Praying sharing and serving god bless let's pray thank you lord for these stories and for these lessons we thank you this morning that you've reminded us of these three truths that you invite us and require us to be a people who are dependent on you praying you invite us to share with our loved ones and others, the truths of what you are doing. And you call us to serve, to serve you and to serve one another. Help us to find our place. And may these lessons, Lord, be appropriated to each of our lives. Deliver us from knowing more than we are doing. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.